Galatians, starting in chapter 3. Paul's continuing on right where he left off in chapter 2. And after now giving kind of some background to show that he himself has every right to be proud in the flesh as far as the law of Moses goes. And that uh, he has learned a better way, a more excellent way. That he's teaching a higher truth of God through Jesus than what they're uh, trying the way they're trying to get righteousness through the law of Moses and circumcision, and that even Peter had to uh, agree and repent to his foolishness by trying to follow religious patterns set up by God through Moses when Christ had revealed a better way. So he starts out here, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? He said, did you receive the, the spirit by works of the flesh or by hearing with faith? And since I know you, you received it through faith, why are you now trying to perfect this work by the flesh? You're going backwards. He said, God is mighty amongst you and bringing you to him and, and doing miracles through you. And this has all come by faith, not by observing works of the law. And then he brings up Abraham and he says, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So he's bringing up the point that Abraham was credited as a righteous man through his faith in God. That is what set him apart. That made him the father of faith, that he believed in God and trusted in God when everything, his natural eyes and other senses, his his flesh experience told him otherwise, he carried on in faith. And that's what made him the father of faith, the father of, of a, a people filled with all nations through Christ. And then Paul says, and everyone who is under the law is under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man still live by faith. So he's quoting different parts of the law of Moses to show that no one gained righteousness through the law. He continues, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the law was set up. Well, he's going to get into that, so let me hold off there. So the law said, if you don't do all the law, you're under a curse. And it was well known, and Paul reminded them, no one lived according to the whole law. So we were all under a curse. So so we needed Jesus even when we were under the law, because the law was not good enough for us. And then he goes on, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So he says, if you have a human contract between people, you can't just change it later. It's set up. It can't be changed. And so here he says, the law of Moses 
was a contract between God and people and no one fulfilled it. You can't just add Christ to it. Christ, all it does is it points to Christ and shows how Christ fulfilled it. He's the only one that could. 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So God had made this promise that he would have a seed that would transform the world long before the law was given to Moses. And of course, Moses was many of the many of millions of children of Abraham through the generations. But the promise that had been made to Abraham because of his faith and righteousness uh, was above that. This is a similar argument that he uses. I would, uh, I would argue Paul uses, but whoever you think Hebrew is written by, uh, Hebrews mentions this in talking about Abraham and his faith. And that uh, when he introduces the order of Melchizedek and that that priesthood was ordained long before uh, Levi was ever born. So he says, you know, the law came along later and it was good, but it doesn't nullify what God had promised Abraham before that. 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So this was a promise made by God to Abraham. So the law of Moses that came 430 years later does not invalidate it. So then the natural question is, well, then why do we have the law? He says it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, the righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He's saying there were so many transgressions, meaning things like lying, cheating, stealing, you know, all the things that are commonly called sin. Those are really just the effects of sin. Um, the sin is fallenness, missing the mark of God, falling away from God. That's, that's sin. The, these other things, we can call them sins, and they are the, the missing the mark. Here Paul calls them transgressions, having been ordained through angels until the seed would come. So the law was given to make us aware of the fact that we need a Savior, that we need redemption. And of course, the law also provided the the uh, sacrifices and the day of the atonement, but it was never enough. It was always needed again until the seed, Jesus, was sent. And he says, the law is good. It points us to our need for Christ. But he said, if anyone had attained righteousness because of the law, Christ would not be necessary. But no one ever did. But everyone was well aware if they followed the law that they're under sin and that they need a Redeemer. And so that made the hunger for Jesus and the promise of a life of faith in Jesus all the more relevant and available to those who are aware of their sin. So the law is very powerful in making us aware of this need. 
So he says the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. It points us in the right direction. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. For all, for you all, sorry, let me try a third time. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. He says you're much more than just following a religion now. You've been made sons of God. I mean, think about the reality of what that means, that God would make us his son. What does it mean when you have a son? Well, your son is everything to you. It's your future. It's the one you're pouring your life into, that they can be, uh, you know, the future you. In the, in the Jewish understanding, there was the future you. You were one and the same. That's why they had such a hard time with Jesus calling himself son of God, because it's, it's making yourself equal with God because it's just a, a generation later, it's you in the future. And, and so God is making us sons through Christ. He says, this is far bigger and, and more incredible than anything you can find in following the law. He says, all of you were baptized in Christ. And so you clothed yourself with Christ. You put on a new life. And he says, being a son of God, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek. Doesn't matter whether you're slave or free. So what you know, where you are in life, what kind of work you do, your social status, none of that matters. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. None of those things matter. You're all one in Christ as sons of God. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the same promise given to Abraham. And then we're on to chapter four, where he gives a really powerful. Um, story, uh, uh, metaphor for our growing up in the Lord as sons of God. Verse one. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So if you imagine, if you're the owner of a great estate, which was, you know, well, there's still a lot of this going on today, but, but it was much more part of the culture at that time that there's rich men with many employees and many different farms and fields and you know other business concerns and and so they would have uh you know managers in the house and if you, if you had a son um then the son would of course someday be ruler over this all they would inherit it all but when they're when they're just a little child you expect the son to do what your managers. You've, you've got highly positioned managers who you trust to help run your affairs. And so you've selected some to have close contact with your family. And you expect your small child to do what the manager tells them to do. So even though the manager is 
an employee and the son is the one you, you, you care for immensely. You know, you, that's your, your future, the one you pour your love into. Um, you expect the son to do what the manager tells them to do because um, they're, they're simply not mature yet to step into the fullness of what you have for them, what the future uh, pertains to. So Paul is explaining this as the law being the managers and the training. But this is, of course, is the, the spiritual life for all of us. When, when we accept Christ into our life and we start to walk with him, um, we are in some sense the son of God, but we're a baby of God. We're, we have to be born again into this new life. And so we do not have power and authority we do not have much. We, we, we might have some right away, depending on the things that we're dealing with and personal things. And so we might have great power and authority over personal things we're dealing with. But we have to be trained up and disciplined into the ways of the house of the Father, into his family. And as he transforms us to be more and more like him, which is, uh, comes by a combination of us, faith in believing it and seeking it, and him doing it and doing the actual transformation. As we grow and are exposed to the mind of Christ, the way of his thinking, then he positions us higher and higher with more power and authority to be about his work in different areas. So when you have a baby, you expect nothing of them. As they get a little older, I don't know, what's the first thing? Maybe taking out the trash, okay? You're old enough to take out the trash. I trust you with this job. When the trash is full, you take it out. You put a new bag in, and that's your job. That's your, you know, that's what you can handle. As they get older, you expect more things from them. And then someday they're learning your business. And then someday they're taking over your business. There's this gradual transformation in education, which is called discipleship, discipline in the Lord. And so the Lord himself does this through the Holy Spirit and through others that he places in our life to, to, to disciple us so that we grow in understanding the culture of his house and that we can be about his work. And as we are faithful with little, he gives us more. And it continues on and on as we continue to have faith to grow more and more in him. And he gives us more and more uh, power, authority, uh, responsibility, awareness of his ways in his life so that we can share who he is with the world because that's his business, not running a field or a farm as we might, but running the entire creation. And that's the business he would have for us. Most of all, bringing him glory by bringing his good plan to the world. So we start out small and we grow incrementally. And so this is the example Paul is using. And he's saying the law itself was this sort of guardian pointing us to the way of sonship through Christ, who is the only way in. There comes a time when we are adopted as sons that we are placed as highly regarded by him in his household. I'll read six again. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So a slave or a servant just does what he is told. And often with small children, it's the same. Look, you need to do this. You need to do that. 
in in this obedience is learned and also the ways and methods of the house are learned but then there comes a time when more responsibility is given and, and look son i've raised you i trust you in this task i don't trust you with everything yet you're not there yet but i trust you a lot in this particular area i'm giving you so whatever your decisions you make in this area i'm going to trust you with because you're my son i've taught you how to think and how to be and so when you go about this task that i'm giving you i'm sure you'll do well and i trust you to make the the small decisions within the confines of the task that I'm sending you on. And so when we follow God, it, that's, that's often how the life of faith works, that he's, he's told us certain things, and then we go about and we're like, well, I don't know how to do this. And, you know, I, I found myself many, many times in life where God, just tell me exactly what to do and I'll do it. But, you know, in certain times he will, but more often than not, we he does want us continually seeking him so that we always make sure we're staying on track unfortunately you see it's too common in christianity that people say oh i'm i'm with god and they just go off completely in their own direction so i'm not advocating that whatsoever i'm advocating doing everything we can to make sure we're continually in the will of god but along the way he gives us uh, latitude to make choices in how we serve him. And so long as we're continually seeking him and patiently waiting, uh, because often, 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 it's very important that he teaches us patience and endurance and waiting on him for things and not running off under our own power. But there are certainly times when decisions need to be made and he doesn't give us a, a direction. And in that, he's trusting us to make the decision. And if we go about our life in this way, having faith in him for all things, looking to him for direction in all things, we can't truly make a bad decision because even if we do make a bad decision, he will turn it around for good in the end because our heart was right to follow him, trust him, seek him for direction. And if our heart is truly that, hey, Father, if you give me if you say A, I'll go A. If you say B, I'll go B. But you're, I'm not hearing anything, so I'm going to go B in this situation. And later it looks back and you're like, you know what? It probably would have been better if I would have gone A. That's all fine. God will redeem it all because our heart was to follow him, and we're learning through that process. And in the end, he is so far above us in understanding and capability. He will weave those decisions into his perfect tapestry of overcoming. So he says, when we're young, we're held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. We're, you know, we have this great calling, we have this great future, but we're still in bondage of the ways of the world. But when we grow beyond this, those things are underneath us, and we grow in faith and realizing God is master over all, and these are simply trifles of the world. You're no longer a slave, but a son and an heir of God is far bigger than anything else. He says, however, at that time you did not know God. You were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. He says all these rules and regulations, these religions, and you see it in churchianity a lot. 
people replace the law of Moses with different laws that are created based on the traditions of man. So they seem like they've been there forever because they've been there since we were children. But that doesn't mean they were there forever. That just means they've been there a few hundred years, which is not anywhere close to the time of Christ or the time of Paul. But we've grown up with them, and so we've allowed elemental things to rule us. And Paul says, do not allow these things to rule you. And also he says the observing of days and months and seasons and years. So the biblical timeline of of holidays that God set up, they're super important because they all point to God's overcoming in the world. And, And so, you know, when we pass those seasons in those parts of the Bible, which talk about them, I talk about their importance. But if you think you're going to gain righteousness by doing these things, you're off. All, all righteousness comes through the spirit of sonship, through which comes to us through Christ and helps us to enter into the family of God. There's no other way. There's no other life. Everything else just points to this life. And so it is wonderful and it is good, these things to point to God overcoming the world through Christ, through his kingdom, but they themselves do not give righteousness at all. So Paul says, look, follow the model that I have set for you. Don't go astray. And so that is what we're to become. Like Paul says, we're supposed to follow the model Jesus has set for us, and then we become the model for others, that we are living according to this way. Paul reminds them when he was first with them, he was actually sick, and they took care of him. And he said, you didn't loathe me for being sick, but you took care of me like an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become an enemy by telling you the truth? He says, what happened? You've, you've been so distracted and turned away from the truth. When in the beginning, you were so hungry for this truth. You took care of me a stranger because I was sharing this truth with you. He said, those that are coming after you, trying to teach you these religious ways, are, they're like ravenous wolves. They're taking advantage of you for their own benefit. Verse 19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone for I am perplexed about you. So now Paul says, look, and now I'm deep in prayer for you again. I'm writing this letter to you when you should already be on the firm footing of the of the path of God instead you've gotten off so now I'm I'm back in labor to have Christ formed in you he gives another example 21 tell me you who want to be under law do you not listen to the law for it is written that Abraham had two sons one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman but the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son of the free woman through the promise This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. 
So he compares Hagar and Simon, and <laughs> Hagar and Sarah, and and says these are the the two ways. We have the law, we have religion, even in, in the ways. The religion of Moses was always perverted. The religion that man sets up through Christ is always perverted. Um, in, in different denominations, do it in different ways. But we mix in the way of people, the way of mankind, with the ways of God. And he says those, those who follow those ways become slaves. They become like Ishmael, which must be cast out. And so the scripture talks about a great falling away. He talks about great judgment, sheep and goats, uh, wheats and tares. Those ways must be cast out because God is going to, he's in, already started this process. He's going to create a pure people who are after his way of life, who live according to his spirit by faith alone so that all the rules and regulations of the law point to this life, but they are the fulfillment of this life, which Christ Jesus makes possible, so that we are no longer servants and slaves, but we are sons of God raised up after his way of life, being permeated with, transformed by his very life, so that we take on the mind of Christ, we live in his truth, and his love, and his wisdom, and we carry that glory to the world so that God has known in all creation through his family, through his raised up, matured sons. That is God's purpose in the world. It hasn't changed since he first established Adam and Eve, although they did not do it. Jesus has reopened this way to God's purpose and plan for mankind. And this is what he's going to do. And this will be established before Jesus returns in the flesh, as the scripture says. Scripture is quite clear about this. And so this is one of the best chapters in my mind of, of Paul explaining what this is, who we are called to be. And so I hope this is a blessing to you. Uh, and I hope you have a wonderful day. God bless you. We'll pick up with chapter five tomorrow.